travellers to podcast 59 in our series you should have been there with me simon calder and me mick webb now this week's podcast is more cerebral than usual so um simon and i will try and engage our brains so that we can talk travel philosophy with an expert guest an associate professor no less but first, um, apologies are due from me to Stephen, who took issue with me on Twitter for referring to him as Jessie's boyfriend a couple of podcasts ago, when he is actually her lawfully wedded husband. So folks, consider the record duly corrected, and I do hope that you are still enjoying listening to our podcasts as uh, your bedtime listening. And there's one other thing I'd like to share with everyone, um, and that's a slight diction malfunction of Simon's, which I edited out of last week's podcast to spare his blushes. Um, but in the interests of uh, transparency, this is what he really said. Yes, and we'll be hearing from the philosopher Dr. Emily Thomas, author of The Meaning of Travel, philosophers, author of The Meaning of Travel, philosopher. Author of The Meaning of Travel, Philosophers Abroad. Though, Simon, you do get top marks for flawlessly pronouncing the name of that wretched Icelandic volcano which has stymied the BBC's finest announcers over the years. We were doing a study tour, you know, just a couple of days before the guests were, were to fly back. Europe was shut down for the ash cloud. Uh, this was Eja Fjallgård Jökull in um, April 2010, if I'm not mistaken. That's Eja Fjatjel Jökult. And also on Twitter, and of course you can find us at, uh, at you should have BT, Niall Gray asks, out of interest, is there still anywhere you have yet to visit but want to? Mick, where do you think? <laughs> well, I'm afraid I'm not really as well-travelled as I ought to be. Um, I have never been further east than um, Iran, actually. Uh, so there's there's quite a lot there for me to go and visit. The problem is that I find um, Africa, and particularly South America, so fascinating that uh, when I go there, uh, I find more things I want to go and see next time, if you understand me. So that's pretty well me booked up for the rest of my traveling life well i simply want to pick up where i left off last year i think the first trip which i um was forced to cancel was um to armenia after that i'd love to get to um tajikistan and pretty much anywhere in central asia um but whether i uh, will be going with the right frame of mind um remains to be seen um from a philosophical perspective what is life if not a journey? And who can know their ultimate destination? Well, well done for getting that philosophical out properly. <laughs> and um, it's, it certainly leads us on to our guest for today, Emily Thomas, whose book, The Meaning of Travel, Philosophers Abroad, was published last year. Hello, Emily. Uh, can I ask where you are exactly? Hello. Yes, I'm in Durham, England. How delightful. One of, one of the great English cities. I wish I were there too. It is rather beautiful, although it's also pretty quiet right now. <laughs> but without students, it's especially dead. In a way, um, quiet is what we rather hope for, for, <laughs> for podcasting. And I, I'm glad my neighbour has, uh, has finished cutting the grass, which is quite a bizarre thing to be doing so early in the year, and also um, given how little grass we have in these tiny gardens. Anyway, uh, <laughs> let's, let's get on to business. Um, 
one of the many things that I really liked about your book, Emily, was the uh, was the brilliant quotes that you've managed to dig out from philosophers. Um, and uh, one of them, for example, from Descartes, who uh, um, describes his dissatisfaction with his early education and explains that is why, as soon as I was old enough to emerge from the control of my teachers, I entirely abandoned the study of letters, resolving to seek no knowledge other than that which could be found in myself or else in the great book of the world. I spent the rest of my youth travelling, visiting courts and armies, mixing with people of diverse temperaments and ranks, gathering various experiences, testing myself in the situations which fortune offered me, and at all times reflecting upon whatever came my way, so as to derive some profit from it. Well, Descartes says it all. He certainly does. And actually, as a pure mathematician by by training, I should also point out that he was the father of analytical geometry and probably one of the top half dozen figures in mathematics. So while he was being philosophical about travel, um, he was also helping the world to um, move forward uh, from a scientific point of view. Um, talking of moving forward, I think that What's really good about this book right now is that it's encouraging us to think much more deeply about travel. And this, of course, is at a time when nobody can explore, but we can all plan. So that's a, a tremendous um, boost, I think, for, for, for getting us traveling again in the right frame of mind. But, but straying back, I guess, into science, um, how did you come to write this book, given that your scholarly work so far have included absolute time rifts in early metaphysics. I think it's fair to say that my scholarly work is a little bit more dry than this book. <laughs> um, and that's part of how I came to write it. I'd finished it and a very uh, intense scholarly pernickety project and I wanted to do something more fun. I've always been into travel, I've done a lot of backpacking and I decided I would see whether other philosophers have also cared about travel at any point and it turned out that they've cared a lot. But so once I started out on the on the idea of the philosophy of travel, I fell down this rabbit hole and the book is the result. <laughs> I should ask you if writing the book has been a journey, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm going to say, yeah. Now, actually, when I, when I look at the book jacket, it says that you'll be taking us to places where travel and philosophy intersect, which I think is an appropriate image. And it made me think of Clapham Junction, but sort of of the mind. <laughs> So, um, but where is that point, Emma? <laughs> Let me put you on the spot. <laughs> Philosophy and travel have actually had a big effect on one another for the last three or four centuries. And in really surprising ways, um, philosophers got really into travel and began to think that travel could help us understand the world, the reality that we live in. And in exchange, philosophers have come up with various theories that have affected how we travel. So it really has been an intersection that's gone both ways. Uh, historically, though, um, have philosophers actually travelled a lot. They tend to um, travel in their minds, um, very often just sitting in a chair and praising the virtues of, of um, their room, as we've covered in previous uh, editions of You Should Have Been There. Um, 
they're, they're not great travellers, are they? Oh, there's definitely this stereotype that philosophers don't travel. <laughs> and I think that Socrates is the one who kicked it all off. Apparently, he never left the city walls of Athens. And, and he has this famous saying that you could lead him all over the country just by waving in front of him the pages of a book. Um, and many other philosophers since have followed suit. Kant famously never went beyond 50 miles of Königsberg and, and praised, <laughs> praised his practice. He said that he didn't have time to travel because he wanted to learn about the world. But opposed to this is a long tradition of philosophers who have travelled a great deal. And Descartes is a fantastic example. In his youth, he was a soldier. And he fought in various wars around Eastern Europe. And, and as he became older, he actually never lived for more than three months in a single city. He was described as a bit of a vagabond, constantly packing up all his things and moving on to the next place. And there have been many more philosophers like Descartes. So actually, there are both traditions in the history of philosophy. That's a nice idea, isn't it? Sorry, Simon. I mean, the nomadic philosopher or the philosophical yeah. nomad. Never it mind is. Descartes being the rock star of philosophy. Never mind Descartes being the kind of rock star of philosophy. Um, I guess he's on a permanent rock tour towards the end of his um, career. Yes, that's absolutely true. I mean, he finishes his career famously in Sweden, uh, where legend has it that he died of getting up early because the Queen wanted him to tutor her at 5am and he just couldn't take it. <laughs> oh dear, what a tragic way to go. <laughs> it is. I'm going to refer to another um, ancient philosopher who you also quote in the book, who actually um, was quite draconian about who he thought should and shouldn't be allowed to uh, travel and that was Plato who in the Republic um, said that uh, no young person under 40 is ever to be allowed to travel abroad under any circumstances <laughs> that's a bit kind of ropey isn't it <laughs> it is a little bit ropey also no women at any time in their lives <laughs> So older men, that was it. <laughs> they were the only ones that were allowed. This was due to the fear of the unknown. They were really frightened of people leaving their home places and coming back corrupted and in turn corrupting those around them. Oh, God, it sounds like it sounds horribly like COVID, doesn't it? In a, in a sort of way. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, you, you've managed, despite being a woman, or perhaps because of being a woman, to do a fair amount of travelling yourself, quite adventurous at that. When you are travelling, how much are you actually savouring the philosophy of the journey and how much of it is just looking out the window or indeed worrying if you're going to make your connection? <laughs> if I'm honest, most of it is looking out the window. I find being in the world makes me realise how little I know about it. And I think that's the philosophical thought that recurs to me most often when I'm, when I'm out in it on train rides and bus rides and so on. Well, can I ask you what journey that you've done has given you the greatest cause for reflection? I'm going to name two, if that's okay. So the very first one took place in China when I was 18, spending a few months wandering around there. And the experience of not understanding anything it was really quite eye-opening ah. for me back then. It, it, 
I think there's a tendency, especially as a teenager, to think that you know everything and then wandering into a completely unfamiliar place by yourself makes you realise that it's just not true. And philosophically, that was really useful. The second one, as a as an older person, um, it was Bhutan, just because it's a country that has thoughts about how it should be run along entirely different lines to places here. They do their healthcare differently. They, you know, they're looking at national happiness rather than GDP. They have a completely different attitude to tourists. And again, I found that gave me lots of cause for philosophical reflection. But but surely, Emily, we're told that the point of travel, the point of proper travel is to immerse yourself in a culture, to understand everything you can about it. You're saying, actually, understanding nothing about it is also perfectly valid. I'm intrigued. That is exactly what I'm saying. I mean, I certainly think that when you go to another place, you learn things about it and that's worthwhile. But the lesson that you know so much less than you think you did, I also think is worthwhile. Well, can we come back to your book? Because um, you've got some uh, good examples, I think, about of, of how philosophy has has actually uh, changed our way of travelling. Um, and, and there was one particular uh, chapter about our attitudes to mountains, oceans, deserts and other sort of infinite mm. landscapes, which I think were once feared, but now people sort of think of them as a must see. And we think that um, and, and, and you suggest that philosophers have, have helped in that uh, change of view. I think that's right. So in the Western world, in the 16th and 17th centuries, if you look at mountains, people thought that they were terrible, ugly things. And there's some poet that describes them as protuberances, boils upon the earth. Like people really disliked them. And, and then in the late 17th century, you have an English Cambridge philosopher called Henry Moore, who advances a new theory of space. And Moore thinks if you were to delete everything in the universe, all the planets, all the stars, that you'd still have space left behind. And that makes him think that space must somehow be connected to God. So he advances this new theory called absolutism about space, and it's picked up by no less than Isaac Newton, who popularizes it. And from Newton, it finds its way into lots of artists, so novelists and painters, and then suddenly you have this notion that places that appear to be infinite, like deserts, mountains, seascapes, are also connected to God. And then you start to get poetry describing mountains as cathedrals to God and seas as the divine landscapes. And then you get this huge shift in the way the West perceives these landscapes. Well, I think I kind of understand what you mean, because um, I, I don't know whether Simon thought the same thing, but uh, a couple of years ago, we were on our mountain uh, perambulations. We were in a place called uh, Gavarni in uh, the French Pyrenees, and it's got this incredible uh, geological uh, circle, a, a cirque. It's like a huge rock amphitheater and um, I mean it really is unbelievably impressive and when we were there there was a an incredible storm uh, at night you could actually lean out the window of the hostel we were staying at and see the lightning kind of um, illuminating this uh, this huge amphitheater and I do think that uh, that idea of uh, the well the sublime they called it didn't they is uh, I kind of think it's still it's still there <laughs> to be uh, to be enjoyed with or without the 
the uh, a connection to God. Uh, yeah, so the sublime was something related that came a little bit later. Oh, and right. it's this idea that oh, it's this idea that um, alongside beauty as an artistic feeling, the sublime, a feeling of pleasurable terror can also be an artistic feeling. And, and people began to visit mountains for this other reason, too, that they wanted to stand on the edge of a craggy cliff and look down and feel scared, but also enjoy it. And what you're describing, it sounds exactly like an experience of the sublime. <laughs> I'm, I'd love to know, Emily, um, which philosopher most closely aligns with your travelling style or indeed which traveller aligns most closely with your philosophical style? I think the philosopher who aligns most closely with my travelling style is Mary Wollstonecraft. Right? Oh. So she's late 18th century English philosopher and she wrote a very early travel book by a woman called Letters from Sweden, Norway and Denmark. And she wanders by herself up and down the coast, investigating various cities, meeting lots of people, talking to them. And she is really trying to fill herself with her surroundings. And, you know, so she goes to like sort of cliffs and forests and really looks at them and tries to absorb them. And that struck a chord with me. I think I try to do that when I'm traveling. And if anybody wants to follow in Mary Wollstonecroft's uh, uh, footsteps, you can actually make the same journey as she did them uh, going out uh, initially to Gothenburg on the west coast of Sweden and then um, traveling up to uh, Norway and all the way back down and through Denmark with the help these days of a few tunnels and bridges um, to make life easier to the fine German city of Hamburg. And I dare say you could take a guidebook and um, see how you get on with that. Do let us know. Well, that's a very good thing to be um, publicising, uh, both of you, on uh, what I think is International Women's Day, isn't it? The day we're recording it this. It is, absolutely. Yeah, that's very well timed. Yeah. Emily, you've got a chapter in, in, um, in your book about doom tourism, and it wasn't quite what I expected it to be. I, I thought it was going to be about, um, you know, going to see Chernobyl or, or a, uh, a concentration camp. So there's a difference between dark tourism, which is going to see places associated with death and disaster, like going to see a concentration camp, for example, and between doom tourism, which is about visiting places that are thought to be doomed. And that might include coral reefs or the Arctic regions that are thought to be doomed by climate change. Ah, have you been to see any of those yourself just out of I interest? I have, yeah. I've been to a few battlefields in my time and I visited Hiroshima on the dark side of things oh. and on the doom tourism side of things. And I have indeed visited coral reefs and glaciers. I'm not sure how ethical that is now, but I certainly have been there. Can I suggest that the intersection of dark tourism and doom tourism is probably Chernobyl in uh, Ukraine, close to the border of uh, Belarus, where, of course, you've got environmental catastrophe, which has suddenly become a tourist attraction with um, uh, day trips for about 100 quid from Kiev um, taking you uh, right up to reactor number four, which so um, catastrophically exploded. And oddly, Chernobyl is also sometimes cited as an example of the sublime 
experience of tourism because people think that it's terrifying to stand at the site of this nuclear disaster and yet you're separated from it in time enough that it's not so scary that you can't enjoy it that there's something similar to standing on the edge of a cliff and looking down standing at the site of a nuclear disaster years after that is um that is food for thought isn't it um but uh now um as well as the 10 tips at the front of your book for how to travel well you've also got um, at the back of the book um, appropriately enough 10 tips from historical travelers um, f- about what to do when you return home uh, and and actually my favorite one is number six um, which is <laughs> um, <clears throat> do not bore people with travel talk <laughs> <laughs> so is this where we say i'll get my coat isn't it i think but uh, no. uh, so, and, and i will actually read it if i can because it's uh, brilliant um it's from someone called is it james howell uh, it is yeah. yeah he wrote a very early guide to travelers ah and it was called instructions for foreign travel with a double l in uh, 1642 And this is what he said about not boring people with uh, travel talk. Some degenerate travellers do not manage this. All their talks is still foreign, magnifying other nations and derogating from their own. You can't exchange more than three words with them before they are at the other side of the sea, commending the wines of France or the fruits of Italy. (laughs) Worse yet are those who have evidently been abroad under hot climates through their diseases. Um, I mean, this is brilliant. And it's actually, <laughs> it's filled with italics and uh, uh, speech marks and stuff. It's, it's, it really is like a piece of social media, isn't it? From uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, He really cared about what he was saying. <laughs> There was a real worry, actually, about people coming back from the Grand Tour with with foreign diseases. And it used to be said a sign of a person who has a foreign distemper is that they require French doctors. So they're the ones who are best able to treat them. (laughs) That's remarkable. So there is actually a historical precedent for the 21st century red list where you definitely need French doctors or manner of medics before your pastor's fit to be able to come to the UK without a variant of concern. And if I may, Emily, I'd like to ask whether philosophy is going to be able to help us deal with the new world of travel, which um, in the next uh, 10 weeks or so we hope to be opening up. What do you think? I think it can. I think philosophy is best at helping us think clearly about big problems and philosophy is going to be good for this we're all going to be weighing up the ethical considerations of is it worth me going to visit my grandmother that I haven't seen for so long and even though there's a small risk of me um, you know transmitting covid onto people along the way these kinds of ethical problems that I think philosophy could definitely help with you mentioned to me when we spoke actually before we started recording that it was actually um, that philosophy provided tools for clear thinking, which I think this is quite a nice way of uh, looking at it. 
Um, yeah, it, yeah, I definitely think so. I must add, though, that with these French distempers from the Grand Tour, they are specifically <laughs> talking about venereal disease, which is <laughs> is quite a different thing to the current issues that we face. Yes. Um, although um, equally um, um, damaging uh, to the sufferer, uh, uh, so I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I believe that to be the case. So next week, suitably equipped mentally and morally, we're going to be reading the Prime Minister's roadmap and uh, discussing the travel prospects for the summer and beyond. Until then, I'd like to say thanks very much to uh, Emily Thomas for what really were words of wisdom. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'll echo that. And uh, assuming you haven't already had the good fortune to read Emily's book, The Meaning of Travel, Philosophers Abroad, is published by Oxford University Press, price £14.99, described as the first ever book on the philosophy of travel, scouting the borders between travelling and thinking. And you can find out more, of course, at our usual Twitter feed, which is at you should have BT. And also on our uh, website, uh, anchor.fm slash you should have been there. And you can leave us an audio message there as well, if you'd like. But until next week, it's goodbye from me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder. Goodbye. And goodbye from me in sleepy Durham. Mm-hmm.